0: Welcome, everyone. This is a Council of Institutional Investors Educational Podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. I am here today with Zohar Goshen, the Jerome L. Green Professor of Transactional Law at Columbia Law School. Professor Goshen is the co-author of a recent article published in the Yale Law Journal entitled Barbarians Inside the Gates, Raiders." Activists and the risk of mistargeting. Welcome, Professor. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us today.
1: Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Professor, your article compares and contrasts the activities of corporate raiders and activist hedge funds. So perhaps we can begin by explaining to our listeners how do you define those two categories of investors for purposes of your research?
1: So the way we, we look at that, we look on the classic methods of being a raider or an activist. The raider would normally buy a block of about 10% of the shares and then engage in a tender offer to buy 100% of the corporation. So the end goal of the raiders is to get full control of the corporation. An activist on the other side is someone who's buying between five and 10% of the shares and then engage in solicitation of votes with the other shareholders, it sometimes ends up with a proxy fight in which they are trying to persuade mostly institutional investors to support their cause and their business proposal versus the existing management. So this distinction of one buying the whole company and paying a premium, normally about 30% of the, or above the market price, and one buying just 5 to 10% and paying no premium and just engage in persuasion of the other shareholders, leads to a situation in which the raider has a much harder rate in terms of how they can make money. They can make money only if they can improve the corporation in a dramatic way to cover all the costs involved in buying the corporation. While the activists, because they are not paying premium and they buy smaller blocks, they can make money even if they improve the performance of the company by 10%, 15%. They will make a lot of money even then. Uh, so their harder rate to make money is much lower. In any case, these differences, sometimes they are get mixed up. You know, like Sometimes you have a, an activist going after a corporation and the goal is to persuade the corporation to be sold to a raider. And sometimes you can see the same one, like Elon Musk going after Twitter. At the beginning, he was an activist. He bought 9% and said, I wanna sit on the board and improve performance. And before you know it, he changed his mind and wanted to become a raider and buy the corporation. So regardless of these overlapping places, the article tried to make the analysis as clear as possible with taking the two typical cases of a raider and activist.
0: So professor, your article argues that Delaware corporate law discourages corporate raiders but encourages hedge fund activists. So what evidence supports your conclusion? And, and how would you reform Delaware corporate law to address your concerns about hedge fund activists?
1: So Delaware uses a standard of review called UNOCAL, And that standard of review applicable for both raiders and activists. And according to this standard, what the court is doing, they are looking to see whether there was a threat to the corporation and whether the defense that was used by the management is proportional to the threat. So it's seemingly the same standard that you would apply to both cases, and it looks the same because both are subject to UNOCAP. However, when you look on the way it is applied and the results of the cases, you see that when the management is facing the radar, Almost everything is a legitimate threat, including the claim that the price offered is too low. On the other hand, and, and more than that, even if you put a poison pill on a clear day, there is no specific threat in the, in the horizon. It's still allowed. Even if you take a combination of a poison pill and a staggered board, which is very powerful defense, some would say you can never overcome this type of a defense. It's, it's equal to just say no. Even then, Delaware said it's OK. When you look on activists, then you see that the court said you cannot use clear day appeal if there is no actual threat. You can use, you cannot use the appeal, which is absurd because uh, when the activist is already in, then it's too late to put the appeal. In any case, that's what they ruled. More than that, the court criticized the use of low threshold trigger like five percent and the use of acting in concert provision in which the company is trying to capture. Not just the activists, but also what is known as the Wolfpack, because some activists will tip some of their friends, and then as a collective, they will go after the corporation. Sometimes they can reach even 30% of the company in terms of their holdings. And the court said, no, you cannot do that against activists. The risk of activism alone is not a cognizable threat, and 5% is too low, and acting in concert is too broad, and you cannot use it. Uh, Just to give the illustration of the case, the Williams case where that involved an oil company, there was a global pandemic that led to a market crash. There was global fight over oil between Saudi Arabia and Russia and the companies within the oil industry. So the company price dropped 50%. They had an earlier uh, experience like two years earlier uh, with an activist that went on the board and it was disaster. So they adopted a 5% pill with, acting in concert provision. They were supported by the proxy advisors. Nonetheless, Delaware basically invalidated that appeal. So from our perspective, this is a clear distinction between the way you apply the same standard to activists as opposed to raiders. And our proposal is for Delaware to equalize the way they treat them because raiders do not present higher risk than activists in that regard, and therefore they should be treated the same way.
0: So, Professor, based on your research, which group of investors is better at enhancing long-term shareholder value, corporate raiders or activist hedge funds? And what is some of the key evidence that you believe supports your conclusion?
1: So there are two types of mistakes that either a raider or an activist can make. The first one is the most trivial one in which you believe you can fix underperforming firms and you are wrong. Okay. It's, it's underperforming, you try to fix it, and you can't. About 30% of activism campaigns belong to this group. But it could happen to a radar as well, just with the radar is less transparent for us to see when this has happened, when they buy the whole company. We are focusing on a different risk, a risk that we call mistargeting. And that's the risk of going after a properly managed firm that's only underpriced by the market. And then when you try to fix it you in fact destroy it you are breaking good companies. I'll give you a, an example suppose you are in an industry where all companies are using 3% of their free cash flow for R&D. One company is using 7%. So it could be that the 7% is just a reflection of agency cost management is engaged in a pet project they are going to waste the money or it could be that they have some idiosyncratic vision in which they are developing something which will be a breakthrough in the industry. So when the activist is coming after this company, they will normally go after the 7% and try to take it down back to 3%. If it was indeed a case of a pet project, then they will improve value. But if it was a case of idiosyncratic vision and they take away the the R&D down, then we will never see the breakthrough innovation and we will not see the increase in price that we could have gained from the innovation of the company. So in that regard, the mistargeting risk is much more higher with activists than with, with the raiders because the raider uh, has a much higher, harder rate. They have to buy the 100% of the company and therefore the risk that they will destroy long-term value is much lower than the activists. As far as the empirical studies uh, about the long-term improvement in firm performance, uh, none of these studies can actually test for mistargeting, but they did test for the normal mistakes that can be uh, happening in this context. And what we can say is that when you look on overall, then the total of these studies show inconclusive results. It's not clear that beyond the initial jump in price, that the hedge fund activists actually improved performance for the long term. Uh, in fact, most of the improvement in value is coming not from improving performance, but from forcing the company to sell itself to a radar and get the premium. On the other hand, when you think about the probability or the risk of losing high performing companies that's only underpriced by the market, then studies show that about 25% of the companies are responsible for the whole return in the stock market. So what does it mean? Like the quarter of the companies perform extremely high, the rest, if you just buy the 75% in your portfolio, you will get zero. It's all the return that you get in the market is coming from 25% of the company. So what it suggests is that the risk of mis-targeting, meaning breaking one good company is equal to the benefit of fixing three bad companies in that proportion. So we think that the risk of breaking good companies is a substantial risk in the market, that we should have looked into that and align the legal regulation, both in the federal regulation and in Delaware, to take account of this risk.
0: Professor Bloomberg's Matt Levine has argued that the threat of hedge fund activism being campaigned against and voted out at a proxy fight forces executives to make companies as profitable as possible. So why do you believe Mr. Levine is wrong about that?
1: Well, Mr. Levine is, is a brilliant writer. I love reading his uh, his emails. Um, but I think in this case, he's looking just on half of the story. And what, what, what do I mean by that? If you believe that activists never make mistakes and they never miss target, then activists are pure gold. The only thing they can do is just improve performance. But if you believe that they make mistakes and sometimes they are mistargeting good companies, that they are preventing them from following long-term vision or long-term project or some idiosyncratic vision, if you believe that this type of mistakes can happen, then we have a trade-off. We have a trade-off between the benefit of fixing the bad companies, which is the point that Matt Levin is focusing on, but the trade-off is... What's the cost of breaking good companies, which is what we, my co-author and I, are focusing on, to show that there is a trade-off here, and it's not that obvious of a conclusion to say that activists are always good.
0: Professor, your article argues that the federal securities laws discourage corporate raiders while doing less to keep out activists. As you know, February of 2022, U.S. Securities Exchange Commission issued proposed amendments to modernize the rules governing beneficial ownership reporting. That proposal, which has not yet been finalized, would make four changes. One, accelerate the filing deadlines for Schedules 13D and 13G beneficial ownership reports. Two, expand the application of Regulation 13D and G to certain derivative securities. Three, clarify the circumstances under which two or more persons have formed a group that would be subject to beneficial ownership reporting obligations, and four, require that schedules 13D and 13G be filed using a structured machine-readable data language. So, Professor, give us your prediction of what the final SEC rule may look like and tell us where the final rule is likely to fall short of fully addressing your concerns about hedge fund activists.
1: So I was very happy to see the original proposal, and I believe it is going in the right direction in terms of reducing the risk of activists mistargeting corporations. And especially the risk of acting together with the Wolf Pack, because the definition, the new definition of a group, would capture the tips that the or the information that is coming from the lead of the pack to the other members of the pack. So I was, I was, I was in course. I didn't think it's it's going all the way, but I thought it's a major improvement to where we are. And I hope that that at least some of it will happen. Unfortunately, just recently the SEC published a report based on some of the comments the SEC received. And my reading of it is that the SEC will walk back possibly all of these proposals and will see no changes to 13 b and 13G. I have to add again the word, unfortunately, but this is my reading of that report that the uh, SEC doesn't see any benefit to anyone. That's, that's how I read it from making these changes. I think it's wrong. I think there are a lot of benefits that can come out of it, but it is what it is.
0: That concludes our podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to again thank my special guest, Zohar Goshen, the Jerome L. Green Professor of Transactional Law at Columbia Law School. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at jeff, J-E-F-F, at C-I-I. O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.